Great to see you guys this morning. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is David. I'm a member here at Bellwether. My wife, Taylor, and I have been coming here for about a year now with our three children. Uh, just so you know what you're getting into this morning, my two oldest children were asked if they would like to, you know, join the service this morning because Daddy's preaching, and they were both like, nah, we're going to stick with our class. So that's boosted my confidence a lot this morning uh, as we prepare. No, we're, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, uh, would you turn there? We're in Genesis chapter 8. This is the third week we've been looking at the story of Noah. And I don't know about you guys, but every time I look at these Old Testament stories, and, and especially this time going through Noah, I'm just reminded of, of what a gift we have in these ancient stories that the people of God have handed down for generations we have this story about a guy named Noah from thousands of years ago, and yet it speaks so clearly to, to our lives, to, to right now, to things that we might be processing or going through or talking about in our circles. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the story. I, I think also I've been reminded about the story of Noah that, you know, it, it's funny the way we, we kind of caricature Noah. He, he shows up in, uh, in a lot of like kids songs. He shows up on walls. He shows up in murals. He might be like, this one's really been bugging me this week, just the idea of like Noah's Ark over a baby crib and like the waters of judgment are beneath the ark. With the, Anyway, just it's bad, it's bad design um, for, for the story of Noah, bad symbolism. So, so I'm, I'm pro uh, ark cribs, like we want to build the crib as an ark, that's, that's the better, better idea. Anyway, so, so as we're thinking about the story of Noah, there's, there's a lot here, right? And, and, and we do sometimes have like a, a sing-song version of it in our minds, and maybe we miss out on some of the richness. I don't know if you guys grew up in, uh, in Sunday school and in VBS. If you did, you might know the song, Who Built the Ark? Y'all know that one? Who Built the Ark? Noah, Noah. Who, yeah, Who Built the Ark? Brother Noah built the ark. So, and then it goes, Old Man Noah built the ark. He built it out of hickory bark. No, go for wood. Anyway, there's, so, so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot more to the story than we might think. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Nathan, uh, man, just did a great job of, of unpacking that God is a God of justice, that he does stand in a position to judge the world, and, and that when humanity is destroying itself and the world, he will step in and intervene with judgment. And so we, we saw that God was going to bring judgment onto the world, and Josh, man, so thankful, got to listen to the podcast this week on the way back from, from the mountains, and, uh, and just, just got to hear a, a great word about the ark and, and what it represents of our salvation and, and how it points towards Jesus and, and how he has provided a way of escape. This morning, we're going to jump into the story with Noah still floating on the water, okay? So Noah is in the ark. He's floating uh, on the water, and the world has literally been swept out from under Noah. Uh, the waters of chaos and judgment and destruction have surrounded him as far as the eyes can see. And, and maybe the waters of chaos surrounding you as far as the eyes can see, maybe that, that sounds a little familiar if, if you think about your life in various seasons. So, so I want to ask this morning, as we, as we read the text, what can we learn from Noah? What can we learn about how he thinks, how he acts, how he responds to God? But even more than that, what can we learn about God and what he's up to during these times? With those questions on our hearts, let's dive into the text. We'll be in Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And you may know the story from here. Noah 
sends out a, a raven and then a dove and then two more doves. Eventually, the, the waters subside. We're, we're going to pick back up in Genesis chapter 8, verse 15. So skip down to verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, Shall not cease. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from, this, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord just to open our eyes to the text this morning. God, we love you. We ask this morning that you would open our hearts to hear and see, to believe. Lord, would you help us see how big you are, how powerful you are, how great you are. But Lord, more than that, would you help us see your goodness, your kindness, your grace, and your love towards us? Would you help us believe this morning? Because in your name, Lord Jesus, amen. 
Like I said, we're catching up with Noah floating on a boat, drifting in these waters of chaos and destruction above a world that really will never be the same. I want you to think about Noah as a human for a moment. He's responded to God in faith. He has built the first boat ever. He has rescued his, fa- his family. And maybe he's sitting on the boat on days one and two, and he's kind of thinking some smug thoughts to himself, right? I mean, he's, he's thinking, hey, I did it. I did the thing. I built the ark. I rescued my family. They're probably going to tell stories about me, right? He, he's kind of thinking, hey, this is going pretty good, but we're not going to catch up with Noah on day one or two or three of the flood. In fact, the flood itself lasted for 40 days, and Noah has now been drifting over these waters of chaos for five months. He's been locked in a boat that surely is getting smaller by the day with the stench of livestock, the growing complexities of human relationships that are all trapped in the same space. You all know what I'm talking about. The terrors of the flood, they all survive together, and then just the waiting and the waiting and the waiting. The doubts creep in. I know that God is just, but I'm not sure he's good. Maybe he put me on this boat to witness the flood and then kill me through starvation or insanity some days later. Maybe I'm the biggest fool for trusting God and building this boat in the first place. Did God really say, the serpent's voice echoes in his heart. On top of all that, as he floats, he has to begin thinking, if this ever ends, my house is gone, my garden is gone, my flock is reduced to the few herd animals left on this boat. I am stuck on a boat with quite literally the last people on planet Earth, and half of them are my in-laws. In fact, if everything I did in life before the flood is gone... Is God just going to do this again? Did he wipe us out then? He's going to wipe us out again. Maybe this is all meaningless. Maybe Noah beat Nietzsche to nihilism, and he would have said something like Nietzsche said, where he said, we came from nothing, we're going to nothing. Meanwhile, we sit here on a boat. Nietzsche didn't say that. Meanwhile, we sit here trapped between two nothings, contemplating our nothingness. Maybe this is the way Noah began to feel. Like, is, does anything have any purpose of just sitting on a boat? Right? Everything's gone. And when I return to the world, I knew it's not going to be the world I knew anymore. When everything has changed, when we've trusted God for rescue, but his timing feels terrible, our faith is down to its last drops, where do we find hope? What is there left for us? That's what I want to look at this morning. If we pay attention here, the scene is, is familiar Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Similar scene, but this time, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of chaos and darkness, and a man and his family on a boat, and about to be a part of a world made new again. It's a new beginning. In the midst of the flood, God has not forgotten. In the aftermath of the flood, the only first right step to worship, and even in the unfamiliar territory of the world made new, God still has a commission and a covenant for us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We'll start with the first. In the midst of the flood, God has not forgotten. A conjunction and a name. If you've read the Bible much, you've seen this pattern before. But God. Things are bad, darkness abounds, but God, hope, shows up here. Genesis 8, 1, but God remembered Noah 
and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind. And here the, the, the Hebrew word for wind, same word for spirit that hovered over the face of the waters. And so there really is this imagery of, hey, God is beginning over again. He, he is recreating. The spirit is coming back over the surface of the water to recreate the world. So a wind blows over the earth and the waters subsided. God promised Noah rescue and it wasn't half-hearted. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't cruel. But that promise was fulfilled in God's time. And our faith is often feeble. You know, my family just got back from a great uh, trip to the Smoky Mountains. Uh, we drove up there in our minivan with the coolest car top gear you have ever seen on top. Uh, we, we cruised up there, but I got to thinking, I mean, just thinking about this sermon, and I'm thinking about my four-year-old sitting behind me. And, and you know, an eight-and-a-half-hour car drive to a four-year-old, it's just like, it's just malicious and arbitrary. Like, it, it, like what possible good can come from being trapped in a car seat for that long? She's sitting there looking at the back of my bald head thinking, this man has forgotten me, right? I'm just stuck back here in this car seat. But I know where we're going with the help of my GPS, right? I, I know that there's a plan. I know that if she will just hang in there with me, there is the glory of the mountains. There's Dollywood, right? There's so much good on the other side of this trip. But all she can see right now is the car ride. And I know that's not a perfect illustration. There's a lot more going on in this story. But I do think sometimes we are that kid in the back seat just going like, is this car going somewhere? Like, is God going to do something? Does he have a map? Because I'm not seeing the map, right? This does not feel right. And we're just reminded in this story, God does remember us. He does see us. He does know. John Calvin commenting on this verse says this. He says, let us therefore learn by this example to rest on the providence of God even while he seems to be most forgetful of us. For at length, by affording us help, he will testify that he has been mindful of us. If the flesh seeks to persuade us to distrust, let us not yield to its restlessness. But as soon as this thought creeps in that God has cast off all care concerning us or that he is asleep or far or distant, let us immediately meet it with this shield, the Lord who has promised his help to the miserable, will in due time be present with us, and we may indeed perceive the care he takes of us. We're prone to be weak in faith. If we weren't, Paul wouldn't have reminded us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he's sure, he's sure that he who began in a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it. For those who have hoped in Christ, we have this belief that God does know us, he remembers us, and he is working something out for good. God remembers Noah. Second, Noah does the only right thing you can do in a world made new. He gets off the boat, and it's got to be like the biggest what now moment ever. Have you ever had like a what now moment? Like you, you just something crazy happens, and, and you just look around at the people around you like, I don't, like I wasn't expecting that. I don't know what to do, right? <laughs> That's got to be the situation that Noah's in. What, what do we do? Now And so he does the next right thing. Genesis 8, verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered it as a burnt offering on the altar. Noah worships God, right? When, when, when the world comes apart around us, what do we do? How do we respond to that? 
And one, the first thing we can do is we can just acknowledge God and worship. God, I don't understand why you did what you did. I don't understand what you're doing next, but I just am going to declare right now that I trust you. I believe you that I'm going to worship you. Before this sounds too obvious to us that Noah would, you know, he's the good guy. He would do the next right thing. I, I want to just think about two temptations that Noah had, right? He, it's not obvious. If, if you think about your own heart, like you, you've been on a boat for six months, you finally get off, and your heart is just glad with worship towards God. Like, probably not. Like, probably you're like, you're fighting with your spouse right before the door opened. Right? It's probably a mess. And so uh, he, he gets off. The, the first thing, I think the first temptation that Noah avoids is he avoids bitterness towards God. God, why'd you have to destroy everything like that? Couldn't you have picked a different way? Why didn't you just zap me out of here like Grandpa Enoch? He got it easy. Why'd I have to suffer like this? God, why'd you have to leave me on that darn boat for six months? Couldn't this have been like a 48-hour like wash, rinse deal and we could just have this all over with? Why, why so long? But Noah doesn't respond in bitterness. He responds in gratitude with a sacrifice. Secondly, he avoids pride. Now, look, my sisters in the room, I, I, don't, I don't know if we connect on this at the same level, but guys, they're holier than us. Y'all know you just built the ark that saved the world. Literally every person who lives forever is your descendant now. They will tell stories about you at a church in Mississippi thousands of years later. You're coming off that ark with that crow that came back. He's on your shoulder, and you're like staggering down. Who built the ark? Noah, Noah, right? That's, that's what you're about. You're like, y'all, I just saved the world. I'm a big deal now. They're going to talk about me. He avoids pride. He avoids pride. Think of how Noah could have been so self-aggrandizing in this moment, but instead he looks to God and he says, I know where salvation comes from. I know where my hope is. It's not in me. It's not in what I've done. It's in what God has done to provide us passage through this storm. Noah moves past bitterness and faith. He avoids pride with humble sacrifice to the God who remembered him and saw him and his family through the storm. When life assaults us, and it does sometimes, we look up. We remember God remembering that he remembers us. Number three, and and we're going to spend a little bit more time here In the unfamiliar territory of a world made new, God still has a commission and a covenant. A major theme of this passage is the idea of a new beginning. God's about to set up the terms, in a sense, of that new beginning. Now, if you were here for uh, the earlier part of our time in Genesis, or maybe you're just familiar with the story, you might have noticed that Genesis 9, verse 1 sounded really familiar. So I'm going to read the familiar verse. Genesis 1, 28, speaking about the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God says this, the scriptures say this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All right, Genesis 9, 1 again. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? God hasn't forgotten his global plan for humanity. The flood didn't change that. He does, however, in this time, he clarifies his commission and he makes a new covenant with Noah. And so I'm going to really summarize Tim Keller here and and, kind of unpack the pieces of this new covenant. What we're going to do is we're going to look at it through three relationships. Our relationship to the earth, our relationship to the peoples of the earth, and our relationship to the Lord of the earth. 
So we're saying, hey, God, God makes this new covenant with his people in a world made new. And there's kind of these three pieces, these three relationships that he wants to lock in and define for Noah and his family. First, his relationship with the earth. This is important. God's plan for the planet didn't stop in Genesis 3 when the fall happened. And it didn't stop in Genesis 9 after the flood happened. His plan has always been a global plan to, at one time, expand humanity all over the earth and and now to redeem the whole earth. But it's always been a plan that involved this planet, this planet. Listen to the promise, 822. Uh, We're just going to kind of read little pieces throughout the passage and just see this theme. 822, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. A promise about the earth. 9-1, the challenge is to fill the earth. 9-2, yes, the dread and fear of you will be on every beast. It seems like God is kind of restructuring what he said before about how we're going to subdue the earth. We're going to have dominion over the animals. He's, he's saying how that's going to work out. It's still an earth-focused piece. But notice this and the rest of the promises. God promises not to destroy all of humanity again or the animals in chapter 8, verse 21. 9 verse 9, I establish my covenant with you and every living creature. That's interesting. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make with you and every living creature that is with you. Chapter 9 verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It's interesting. He's, he's, He's bringing in planet earth. So what does this mean? God made a covenant with birds and pigs and wild animals and with rocks and trees and rivers. Like is is that what's going on here? He's, he's bringing the planet into his covenant. I, I want to think about this. This may be a silly illustration, but as someone who grew up with older siblings, it's very relevant to me. Did you ever get like left at home with an older sibling babysitter? Has that ever happened? And, and maybe, or maybe you were the older sibling babysitter. Um, I'm praying for your repentance. Um, but but, but may, maybe, maybe you had that experience and, and uh, like it didn't go so well one time. Or maybe you've left your kids in this situation. It kind of just didn't land. Something went really bad. I, imagine this scene, something like God sitting down with Noah with all the animals present and saying, hey, big brother, it's going to go better this time. Everybody here? Like for everybody, this is going to be better than it was last time. It's something like that. Like God is, the covenant is is spoken, it's articulated to Noah, right? The, the rocks weren't like listening for their name to be mentioned. The, the covenant is to Noah, but it's a covenant that's about his stewardship over the whole earth. And God's saying, this is what I'm going to do through humanity on planet earth. He's articulating the covenant to the stewards, but it's a whole earth covenant. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think just a few quick points of application is we think, so God, he's, he's reframing this commission for humanity, but, but he's really just echoing back to Eden. Hey, I want you to work and keep the garden. I want you to care for this land. So, so piece one is just that there, there's a calling to care for creation, right? To, to, to care for what God has created in the world. I, I do think that you know, the Christian message, we, we do have a, a helpful perspective on like a, a balanced environmentalism, right? That, that we care about planet Earth. It, it, it's meaningful to us, but, but we don't fall into what I call like Bambi theology. You know Bambi theology? Like I watched Bambi as a kid, a little Mississippi kid growing up, and it's like, like 
deer, good, nature, good, humans, bad, hunters, evil. You know, you're like, man, like that, was, that movie's kind of intense. I didn't like, anyway, I was a little kid in Mississippi. I didn't like Bambi. Like, that's not right. Like, we, we, we get to do that, deer sausage and stuff, right? So, so, so how, do we, how do we think about that, right? Like, like is, is nature, like, are we just supposed to leave it alone? It's better off without us? There would be schools of thought that would say, hey, humanity is the blight on planet Earth. We're the virus. It would be better off without us. That is not God's way. Turns out, actually, that the deer herds are better off with, with a little bit of human intervention. But before we go, like, too far the conservative direction, we see that, like, God really does kind of call us to hug the trees a little bit. Maybe not hug them, but to care for them. We want the trees to be the very best trees they can be, the rivers to be the very best rivers they can be. Listen to Psalm 19. He says, hey, the, the heavens, they declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, they pour out speech and night to night reveal knowledge. There's no speech. There's no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. The earth has a message to tell us about God most high. And so we, we do treat it as stewards of it, people who care for it and, and want to, to make it better for human flourishing and for its own good. I'm a strange enough person to have a, a favorite farmer. And, and raise your hand if you have a favorite farmer. But, but there's, there's a guy that I follow, and he's just got kind of really interesting takes on the world. And, 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 and one thing that he says is on his farm, he's a Christian. He says, I really want my pigs to be able to exhibit the pigness of the pig. And I really want my chickens to really exhibit the chickenness of the chicken. Now, he's still going to harvest those animals. But he wants to honor the fact that there is a design for animals on planet Earth. And he, he wants to work with that in tandem with God's design. I think there's something to that, to that idea that God has a plan for planet Earth. We care for creation. Second, I do, I do think it gives, it gives fresh meaning to our labors, right? That we, we do something nine to five with our lives. And, and it has meaning. It has purpose. God says, hey, I still want you to steward and shepherd the earth, Nathan preached on this back in, when we are looking at Genesis chapter 2. I think there's an echo again of it here. That, hey, hey, the world and creation, I want you to steward it. I want you to put my imprint on planet earth for the flourishing of all people. Finally, just a, a nugget. I, I think we want to be reminded here, as we see God unpack a plan for planet earth, Jesus is better than, than Plato, okay? And, and here's what I mean by that. There's this idea that I think really comes out of, out of um, it, it comes out of philosophy and not out of Christianity. And that is, hey, spiritual things are kind of, they're all intangible. They're things we think and feel and maybe experience in non-physical ways. But the physical things, they're like, they're not so good, right? They're, they're the, the worst things. And our goal as Christians is to escape the body and be floating spirits in the sky. Kind of, some kind of idea like that. But if you read the story of Scripture, it's a story of God coming down to earth and redeeming. And even in the last day, you see the heavenly city come down to planet earth. God has a plan for this planet. He's redeeming it. He's redeeming it. So the first relationship, the new covenant, our relationship to planet earth. Second, relationship to the peoples of the earth. Relationship to the peoples of the earth. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, you may have a couple of questions from these verses. I did when I read them. Number one, how does God 
account a reckoning with wild animals who harm humans. That's what this passage seems to say. And to that, I say, I have no idea, and you should ask Nathan when he comes back um, about that. Um, the second question I think that maybe it does ask is, is like, is this God ordaining the death penalty in this text? Like, it's certainly been used for that. I was taught this passage as a kid, like God intends for the death penalty to exist. This is the proof text. I would, I would just say, like, we need to back up and say that God gives a principle here, how that principle manifests in various government orders. I, I don't know that, that that's defined, okay, by this passage. Here's what I think it does for sure tell us, okay? It, it says that we deal with other people. When we think about issues of human justice, of issues about how we treat other people in the world, we deal with them based not on the merits that they bring to the table, but on the image of the God whose, whose image they bear, right? That, that's the way we operate with other people. Um, it, illustrate this. I, I want you to harken back to a day. Some of you may be too young to remember this. It, it's the days of like you, you picked up a phone and it made a sound. It was plugged into a wall. That, those days. So um, you, you may be, you know, at that time, you didn't have like 12 forms of social media for your uh, romantic interests as a teenager. You had to use that phone, and you had to like remember their number or write it down, or maybe they would write it down for you. That's what you knew it was like getting serious, you know. And uh, and so so you you could call them up, and and maybe you you go out on a date or two, and and you really know that this is going well when she gives you a wallet photo to put in your wallet. That's serious now, right? Like, like I carry you with me everywhere I go. I know, I know some of y'all judging us, y'all too young for this, but we didn't have Instagram. We couldn't stalk each other. So we just, we just had this little wallet photo, right? And, and, and you had this wallet photo, and it was like your little way of like, you know, you're with me. I remember you, uh, all this stuff, okay? Now, I want you to, remember, I want you to, to, to imagine the, the story kind of takes a, a downward turn. You know, a better-looking guy comes along, you're ditched, okay? Maybe you got the dignity of like a phone call uh, or an in-person ditch or maybe like a friend told you. I don't know how it happened, but, but you're a little hurt. You're kind of torn up about it, right? You're not probably your most rational self. And, and then you remember, oh, that photo. Oh, I have that photo. So, so you think about, you've got this image in your pocket, you know? And so, so you're, you're, you're torn up and so... Maybe you take it out and you do something dramatic, like tear it up and throw it away or, or burn it. Or, you know, I mean, don't, y'all have all been that petty at some point. So, so you, you, you do something and you're like, hey, I'm, I'm getting rid of this thing, right? I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with this image of this person anymore. And here's a question for us. Is your destruction of that image, does it have more to do with the quality of the image? Like the photograph was a little blurry. You're not crazy about the paper it was printed on? Or, or is your destruction of that image because of the way you feel right now about the person whose image is on it? Make sense? So I th- think what, what Genesis 9, 6 invites us to is to say, hey, when the world is made new, God's desire for humanity is that we deal with people not based on the quality of the paper they're printed on. Tracking? Not, not based on how well they manifest their humanness, but instead based on the God who has put his image and likeness on them. It's how we deal with other people. When we think about justice from a Christian perspective, and maybe when you think about that word, you think about abortion, maybe you think about racism, maybe you just think about a harsh word. 
whatever it is, what we're invited to do is to look to the other person and say, I, wanna, I, I want to see God in you. I want to see his likeness, his image in you. That, that's that's the, what I want to bring to the table. That's my heart towards other people. Now look, um, boundaries, toxic people, relational priorities. I'm not saying every human being has to be in your inner circle no matter how awful they've been towards you. I'm not, that's not my point. What I'm saying is in the world made new, we don't let bitterness, anger, wrath destroy our ability to extend honor and grace to other people. And you know what? They are, those other people, they are jacked up. You're right. It's because they're made of the same stuff you are. And you're a mess too. And so, so what we do is we extend the grace we hope they extend to us. Third relationship in the world made new. The relationship to the Lord of the earth. The relationship to the Lord of the earth. Something surprising happens um, in, in this passage. And, and, and I want to read a couple of uh, verses that are kind of odd at, at face value. So, so 8.21, it says this. It says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aromas, that's Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. Why? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I want us to think back, just as chapter 6, God says, I am going to destroy the earth because the thoughts and intentions of man's heart are evil continually. And so now he's saying, hey, I'm giving the same reason, but I'm going to say that's why I'm not going to destroy the earth. That's interesting. Genesis 9, 12 through 17, this is the sign of this covenant. So I'm going to give you a symbol of the covenant that I have for you. And, and here it is. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. What is it? I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now God gives a sign of covenant. So that's not odd. That's, that's common that there's a sign to the covenant. But this sign is odd. I have set my bow in the cloud. And look, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but I do want to all get on the same page here. So um, your, your scripture may say rainbow. Like in that verse, it may say, like, I've set my rainbow in the clouds. But there wasn't a word for rainbow in ancient Hebrew. So he's, like, it's called a rainbow because of the Christian tradition that's influenced that, right? Not because there, was rain, there were rainbows back then, okay? So, so he, he refers it to as, as a bow and just... Another clarity, this isn't like the piece of ribbon that's bigger than your daughter's head that, that we Southerners put on them. It's not that. It's not that. This is, this is literally, it's the word for a weapon, right? For, for a bow. It's the same root as when they talk about bowmen in an army, right? This is a bow and arrow bow. He says, I, I have put my weapon in the cloud, okay? Now, I want to think about this for a minute. God says, hey, you know what? You really are pretty screwed up, actually, when I think about it, and um, so that you can feel better about things, I'm going to hang a weapon next to the cloud, which is, you know, will remind you of how I destroyed the earth the first time. It's like, what is God doing here? Like, is, is this a trick? What, what's going on? What's going on? I think here's the point. God's establishing that his relationship with the earth, that our relationship to the Lord of the earth, will no longer be on the terms of our performance. Why? Because the thoughts of our hearts are evil from our youth. See, we might think here that God hit the reset button and Noah was righteous and all is good now. But later in this very chapter, later in chapter 9, we'll see Noah passed out drunk and naked. Like his first parents, he finds him naked 
and ashamed. That shame creates family strife. There's a curse given. Noah carried the human brokenness from the fall with him in the ark. And so God redefines his covenant with man based on grace. And we see that in the sign that God gives. Look at the backdrop of God's grace in his bow in the clouds. Have you ever seen a rainbow on a perfectly sunny day that it had no rain or clouds in it? You don't see it. It comes because there was rain, because there was hardship, because there was some kind of pain, some kind of reminder that the world's not as it should be, that we are more frail than we think we are. You know, it is the trouble, the shame, the knowledge of our insufficiency and our frailty, even our own rebellion against God that opens the door for us to see his grace. Second, the bow shows us the sweeping promise of his grace. The bow is a weapon, yes. Where is it? It's hung up. It's put away. God has put away his weapon of war. Your life may be a wreck. You passed through some doors of no return. In other words, you've done things, you've experienced things, you've had things done against you that you go, I can't go back through that door. Like this will always be true about me. It's marked me. You have your own shame to deal with. You have the pain of what others have done against you to deal with. Drunk, naked, and ashamed may not even begin to cover it for where you are, where you've been. So what now? God's bow is hung in the clouds and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sweeping promise is that God has decided not to wage war against rebellious humanity, but instead he's provided a way of redemption. His bow is hung Finally, there's a surprise with God's grace in the bow. You kind of got to wonder, like, maybe God's naive here. Like, he hasn't read to chapter 9 yet, and so that's why he hung his bow up. But as soon as he sees what Noah does, he's like, let me get that back down, right? (laughs) Maybe, Maybe that's what's going on. But, you know, he's already said, like, he's already made the observation that the thoughts and intentions of man's heart are evil from his youth. He's already said, hey, I know that, that murders are going to happen again, and, and here's the way I want you to think about those. So he didn't forget. He knew that it was coming. Did he give up on justice? Did he just say, I'm just going to let him go now? I'm just not going to deal with the problem of sin anymore. No. Charles Spurgeon points out that when we look at the rainbow in the sky, if it had an arrow in it, so imagine this is a weapon of war, It has an arrow. It is drawn. Which direction would that arrow be pointing? It'd be pointing up into the heavens. We know now in the message of Jesus Christ that it was pointed up into the throne room, up at the Most High King, Jesus Christ, the perfect man. Where does God deliver his judgment? The surprise of God's grace is that God is still just. He still deals with the problem of sin, and yet he's put the weight of sin on himself in Jesus Christ. And he's given us a way to see God as one with no condemnation because we are hidden in Christ. Okay, we've covered some ground this morning. First Noah was waiting on a boat. God remembers, he worships, then you checked your phone and all of a sudden it was like Bambi and rainbows and you're just like, is this guy lost? Maybe, maybe there's a lot in this text. 
But as this text ministered to me, I felt like some clarity came. In this covenant and, and kind of the terms of it, that feels a little technical, attached to this, this reality of like you got this guy who's just suffered on a boat. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, where do you find yourself today? On a boat? Floating? Drifting? Maybe for you, it's just like I'm hanging on to a piece of driftwood right now, and if I slip, it's probably over. Maybe that's where you are. You found something on your spouse's computer. Trust has been violated. Your heart's been broken by a friendship or romantic relationship gone wrong. There was a diagnosis in your family that will change everything. Your child, who you spent years doing your best to raise, has pushed you away, pushed God away. Parenting's not what you thought it would be. Marriage isn't what you thought it would be. Financial crisis has hit. You had to drop out of school. Your dream career is falling apart. I don't know what that is for you, but in some way, like the floodwaters of chaos have just swept in, and you're hanging on. And you're like, I know that if these waters subside, like if I make it through this, I mean, I'm trusting God for that, but even if he gets me to the other side, it will be different. It's just, that's just true, right? It will be different on the other side. Life has changed now. So what do we do? If, if I'm honest, um, you know, that, that's kind of where my family has been uh, quite a few times in the last few years. Um, the, the last three to four years have just been rough on the Easley crew. In late 2019, my dad was diagnosed with ALS. This was a year or two before he planned to retire. It was this vision of, you know, ski trips and backpacking trips and kind of this, he was a Smoky Mountain person too. And uh, you know, he's, he's in a wheelchair now. There's a three to five year prognosis with ALS and he's pretty deep into those three years. Um, and unless the Lord really intervenes, like, I, I mean, he's going to pass in not too long. This is like waters of chaos. Like, you don't think your dad's going to pass away in the 30s. You still got little kids. It's crazy. All of a sudden, things are just different. It, just being real honest, hope not too honest, job situation that I was in for a few years, I mean, just not good. Not good. Um, stepped away because of dad's condition and where my family was and a lot of factors um, led to a career change. That career change really did feel like a lot of hopes and dreams just kind of washed away, just gone, you know? Just, it was just a, a change. And, um, and it did feel like, like once again, like just kind of floating. Like, God, we, like, is there going to land? Like, are you, is there a map? I don't know. I don't know what you've been through, I don't know if it's a diagnosis or if it's just relational pain, but I mean, we all know somebody, we all at some point have or some point will experience these moments where the world really does wash away out from under us. Moments where we ask, how long, oh Lord? And you, you just, maybe you're just honest and you say, hey God, I, I believe that you are but the whole you're good thing, like question mark right now. For me, that is a question mark, right? Maybe that's where you are. And, and I just want to invite us this morning that you would do the one next right step, and that is just to, to look to God, to believe that he remembers you. Can I just say to you, based on God's word, you're his child, and he does 
know you. He knows your frame. He knows your dust. He knows your frailty. He remembers you. He sees and he knows. So would you respond and acknowledge God that he's worthy of my worship? I don't understand, but I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to get arrogant in this time. I'm just going to trust him. All this covenant stuff, where does that fit? And just push you a little bit. Maybe today you really are just hanging on to that piece of driftwood. And if that's true for you, I just want to say really to you, like, man, I am rooting for you. Like, I get just the feeling of I'm just hanging on. And, man, just keep hanging on, right? We, your church family, wants to be here for you. I would love to talk to you if you feel like you're just in that place. Like, I'm just making it. That's okay. But as soon as your feet touch the ground, I just want to challenge you that God does have a plan for humanity on planet Earth. And the sooner you begin to take a step or two towards doing something to say, I know that God wants me to put my hand to something and do it with all my might, that step is going to be big for you, okay? There's an invitation in this covenant to say, God has got something for us to be about. No matter what the past holds, there is something that God wants us to do. There's a people side to that, right? A lot of times when hard times hit, there's some forgiveness that needs to happen. There's some bitterness that needs to be left go of, let go of. Maybe there's reconciliation that can happen. And so I just want to just, again, let's, let's push ourselves. If, if our feet touch the ground again, can we just take a step towards towards seeing the goodness and dignity of God, even in the people who hurt us, wronged us. Finally, for all of us, whether you feel like you're on the rock or hanging on a piece of driftwood, can we just remember the goodness of the gospel that, man, that God has hung his bow in the clouds, that he doesn't deal with us based on our performance, on our righteousness. He, he looks at us and he just sees the covering of his son, so he delights in us. Right? I mean, I, I've... I've learned to process this thing with my dad and just thinking like, yeah, Jesus, like on the cross, I really do believe, like, no, like, tires on the road. I believe that God will make this world new again. That means I believe I will take that backpacking trip with my dad. I believe that, right? More than that, I believe that my dad in his sin and frailty and me in mine will both sit before God most high unashamed one day. And so because of that, I go right back to point two. Man, we just need to worship that God who made a way for us. And so that's the invitation this morning. Take a step and worship. In just a minute, we're going to take this cup. You know, I kind of glossed over this. Noah's worship, I just said that he worshiped. He really offered a sacrifice. Um, I'm here to guarantee that no animals will be harmed in the making of this church service. We're not making a sacrifice this morning. But what do we do? What is this? It is a reminder of the one true sacrifice once and for all of Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you don't have one of these, you can raise your hand and usher will bring you one. So just lift your hand if you need one. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read a liturgy, and we're going to take communion together. Just lift your hand. Somebody will bring, bring you a communion cup. Bow with me, and let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you that you have made a way. 
God, you did not have to hang your bow in the clouds, and you certainly didn't have to promise us that you would make the world new again, but you have, and so we're grateful, and we want to worship. And so, Lord, we just humbly say yes to your invitation to sit down at the table with you, Lord Jesus, and share this meal. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. We pray this in your name. Amen.